In today's episode, we speak about grief, and there is some vulnerable experiences that are very descriptive. There is a heavy warning that the content will be triggering and uncomfortable for many. I ask you, the listener, to be attuned to your inner terrain. And if some of the information becomes too overwhelming, take a pause. If there's been triggers that have been activated, the strongest thing you can do for yourself is ask for help. The more that we can listen to stories, the more that we can share is where healing will begin. Hello. Hello, my love. It is so lovely to see you. Really good to see you too. Love your background. <laughs> I did the renovations of my bedroom this summer. So oh, I was great. like, since I uh, do a lot of the recordings, I'm like, I'd like a back splash that would actually look presentable and that I actually <laughs> appreciate. <laughs> oh, let's take a breath together. Mm-hmm. Thank you for being on the Lift One Self podcast, Gazala. I'm really thankful you're here with me. It's an honor. How's your heart doing? Oh. Hmm. Grieving. Let's hold a moment for that. It's honesty. And in a world where we put on all kinds of masks and try to portray something else, it's like to be authentic with our honesty of exactly what we're experiencing. That's courage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. What can you thank COVID for? What can I thank COVID for? Hmm. For me, um, it's put into perspective what really matters. I couldn't travel for a couple of years uh, in between to go and see my family back in, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia. And uh, it just showed me how much that mattered, um, family and, you know, being with the people I love and how much I took it for granted that I could just get up and travel and go whenever. Oh, it's just a plane, uh, you know, plane flight away type of thing. And it's like, um, yeah, you know, uh, now it's, it's not as, as simple. Um, and it just brought that into perspective among many things. I think it's just prioritizing what really matters. And for me, it's away from work and the busy, busy, busyness. It's being with the people that I love. And so I thank COVID for that. Cause I think that fast paced running would have continued maybe. Yeah. You've recently had to travel during COVID and mm-hmm. it wasn't for pleasure. Could you explain or share how the experience of traveling has been through COVID? Because a lot of people aren't aware how airports are, how it mm-hmm. is between countries. So um, my first flight or my my flight back to Saudi Arabia were in, what was it, April. Um, and things have been changing over the past months. But back then we had been in fairly strict measures here in Canada. And personally, as a family, we were doing our best to, you know, social distance. And and so when we got on the planes at the airports, the airports were very busy. Like the plane was packed. And I remember just going, freaking out, looking around me going there. So I have not been around so many people in such a long time. And I'm in a closed space inside a plane. 
it was like the fear was so high. I had a box of Lysol wipes with me and I like frantically wiping down, you know, the, 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 what's it called? The, the tables that you, you know, the, that the you trays. On the, yeah. the trays, yeah, the seats and whatever, because there were people that were sitting in our seats and they were in the wrong seats. It was complete chaos on that Air Canada flight. And you could see the flight attendants. Um, everybody on the plane was functioning from, uh, or most people are functioning from a place of fear. You know, it was like each man for themselves and not a lot of kindness, you know. And then the meals were like in these boxed, um, you know, things that were thrown at us from a distance, like, here you go, you know, and they throw you your meal and you're like, catch. <laughs> and it's like, what's going on? It was, it was, it was different, you know? Um, so yeah. And of course they wanted to do the mask the whole time. I was traveling with young kids. So the challenge of keeping the mask on on 14 hour flights is, is challenging three airports, three flights, um, and then, you know, all the measures at the airport. Um, and then on my, on our way back, uh, which was what a week ago now, it was also different. Um, so now they're requiring, um, so in Saudi Arabia, you're, you're required to have uh, double doses of the vaccine to be able to leave the country. So the vaccine passport and the COVID PCRs, and you need all that paperwork with you. Uh, along with, you know, your passport and other, you know, your legal documents and whatever. Not pleasant, unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was quite tiring. Yeah. Um, how was it coming back into Canada? Um, it, hectic. The, the coming off the flight, the flight was very full. It was a full flight um, to Toronto. And um, so they only let out the people who had a connecting flight, which was us flying to Edmonton and other people with us, obviously. But when we landed in the immigration, uh, like the customs hall, I mean, there must've been like 500 people there. It was really busy, long, you know, that maze of lines and slow and lots of checking, um, I mean, I don't know why there were counters that were empty, like that, that didn't have people working there, you know, even though it was really busy. It took us about two and a half hours just to get through immigration. Okay. Um, and then we were pulled aside after that. Nobody told us anything. We were marked in our, our declaration form, I suppose, or some way of identifying to the next agents. So then we were pulled aside into a second room to kind of question why we were away for five months. Mm even though we had said like, you know, my father was unwell and all of that, but it was like, yeah. So again, you know, the uh, functioning from a place of fear and mistrust, like everybody, you know, um, the air was not very kind. And so we were, we were like, we have a flight in like 45 minutes to Edmonton, you know, like, can someone tell us what's going on? It's like, nope, we don't care. Literally. They said, you're going to have to figure out your connecting flight. And so, yeah, and we were tired after, you know, 14-hour flight and then a, a previous flight before that as well. And the kids were crying. And so unpleasant again. <laughs> a real challenge. So thank you for sharing that. What the listeners are going to find out is the reason why you had to travel in April. And can mm -hmm. you share that? <sighs> yeah. So my father got very sick um, towards the end of March, unexpectedly so. 
I didn't think when I was traveling that it would, you know, it would turn out the way it did. I mean, there was always a possibility, but things were really uncertain at that time. Um, and uh, coming back to Canada, like all those emotions came back because it was, it's like you, you travel back into time. Coming back here, the house was in the, the way I'd left it in a rush, um, you know, to be with, uh, with, with my dad. Even at that time, traveling required a lot of logistics, you know, um, um, for my husband, my kids and myself. It, like, it took about two or three weeks just to get our paperwork in, in place to travel. So I, I got there, yeah, around three weeks after he got really sick. I mean, at that point, I was hopeful that he would actually get better and uh, come out of the ICU. And, you know, it was Ramadan that we would, you know, spend maybe his last Ramadan with with him and with the kids. And so it was it was very clear to me that I, I you know, I wanted my husband and kids to go with me as well. And I'm glad I listened to that intuition at that time it was very loud and clear even though at the time I remember my husband saying well you know do you really like if traveling is not easy in COVID you know with young kids that too and you're going to be busy there are you sure and I'm like yes this is like something I'm very sure about so yeah got there he was uh they were ready to intubate him again that the day I arrived and um they let me see him you know before and talk to him but I wasn't able to talk much because he was already on the, the BiPAP and had that tight mask on his face. Um, but at least he was able to see that I'm there because he had asked about me the week before after they had taken the tube out the first time around. He's like, where's Gazala? Is she coming? When is she coming? And that's not very like my dad. He's very much like, oh, don't worry. Take care of your life there. You know, we're good. But this time he was like, no. Um, where is she? Ask her to come. And so, you know, there were signs very early on as to where this was headed. But yet at that time, it was very uncertain in my head. Can you explain to the listeners what you experienced in these five months? Oh, gosh. So much. Take a moment. It's deep waters. It is. It is. And it's all still very, um, it, it comes and goes and in, in very vulnerable in raw ways. So he was in the ICU for about 19 or 20 weeks the whole time. My initial thoughts were that, you know, I would go and um, for the time that he was in ICU and in the hospital, I'd be there. And then if he would come home, you know, we'd set him up with whatever care he needed at home and I would help them settle in and then I'd come back. Um, but of course, you know, life has its own direction. And so I think the biggest lesson there for me was to take it day by day. Uh, cause I really couldn't plan ahead. Like there was just, there were, it was like, there was no way to plan ahead and say, okay, you know, this is what we're going to do. Cause he would, he would get better for a little bit. And then every week there would be a new complication and then he'd get worse again. You know, so we were on this sort of roller coaster, and we, as my mom and my 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 siblings, my brothers, and myself, my husband, you know, just these waves of like hope and then fear, you know, um, anticipating the loss. Like, is it going to be this week? Is it going to be today? Uh, you know, and 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 he went through some really serious complications. You know, like what was it? Three surgeries, um, lots of procedures 
you know, and each of these events that he had were, you know, were life-threatening. So um, every time he would go into a surgery, uh, I would say my goodbyes, you know, and I'd like, look at him, this might be the last time we, we get to interact. And, you know, so there was all of that going on. I'm very grateful for my husband's support. You know, he had, was holding the fort because I was very much absorbed and taken by all this. Uh, there was nothing else I could really do. You know, I didn't see friends much um, or family. I would, you know, get up in the morning, prepare myself to go. So I'd have to sit and pray and meditate and just gather energy every day just for that day. Because I couldn't, I couldn't do more than a day at a time. And then I'd go there and be with him, talk to the physicians. Um, there was a lot of, I mean, the system, healthcare systems are burnt out and people are depleted. There's compassion fatigue. And for us, this is our loved one and very dear. And for them, it's like, you know, the hundredth patient they've seen that month. And it's like, you know, it, it, the, 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 the clashing of expectations and then, you know, working with people who are really tired. So the day would 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 be about, you know, just, just going, seeing him. He wasn't able to talk because he had been intubated three times and then they had done the tracheostomy um, and the tube. So he was on the ventilator um, a lot. And he never really got to a point where they were able to, to change the tube so that he could actually talk. And it wasn't, it wasn't actually in the beginning, it wasn't really, it wasn't given priority. The priority was more about, okay, we're saving his life. We're doing this, we're doing that. Whereas as family members, and I get that as a physician, you know, but as a family member, I'm like, there's, there's other things that are important here. Like I, the, the fact that he couldn't talk to us, I mean, that was, I think that was one of the most devastating things for me. It's like, you have this person who would wake up and he'd be alert. He would recognize us. He would try to speak, but there would be no, no sound would come out of his mouth. So he'd be, you know, just trying to speak like that. We'd be lip reading and saying, okay, are you saying this? Is this what you're saying? And then he'd just get frustrated and say, you know, I'm just not even going to try. And that was just so like, that was hard to see. I think that was one of the hardest things for me. And I keep reflecting on that. I wonder why that part really gets to me, you know, not having your voice in my own voice kind of faded there. That part for me was the hardest. It's like, if you can't even express your, your pain or your grief or your sadness or your frustration or what have you, or your love or your last wishes, and you're trapped in your own body in this room, like to me, that's one of the worst things that a human being can experience. It was 19 weeks of that. Did you get to hear your father's voice before he went into ICU? No. Well, I mean, on the video calls here, when I was still in Canada, we had a conversation on the 25th of March. Um, that was our, our, our last, you know, real conversation, as in there was back and forth. And, and that was where I, I looked at him and I said, you know, you're not giving up, are you? And he's like, because there was a question of lymphoma diagnosis at that time. And, and he's like, no, 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 don't worry. I'm, I'm, I've, we've got this and I'm not ready to go. And so that was our last conversation, I think. And he said, I'm ready to face whatever's coming. And we, we kind of went by that, you know, that he wanted everything done and he wanted to live and, and, 
So that's, we kind of took that as his last wishes. Mm-hmm. That was my last conversation. But then he was on the 26th of March was when he was first intubated. I came around mid, I, like I arrived mid-April. So at, by that time he had already, the speaking aspect was not ever on the top of the list of the healthcare team um, up until the end. Like that's when they said, okay, someone finally came in and said, we need to start changing the tube so that he can get, he can talk. But at that time he was so frail, so sick. And there were so many secretions and his, his lungs were just not able to, like it was either he talks or he breathes like what a trade-off, you know? Like you said, being trapped in the body and trying to communicate and nobody understands the language that you're trying to say or what you're experiencing, or even being able to ask for help or give indication um, for the listeners to understand too, your father was a doctor. Yeah. So understanding the medical field and being able to give some insights and not being able to do that, feeling like a prisoner. Can you describe how you had to learn to communicate with him in the 19 weeks? Hmm. Hmm. I keep, um, there's a sentence that my dad used to say um, when my kids were younger. I kept, um, and this makes me emotional. You're safe. Take your time. He would always say when my kids were younger and they weren't able to speak yet or have the language to, to say and express, he would say, um, he would pray and say, this is a difficult time for them because you know, they can't express fully what they need to say. And he would say, I hope God makes it easier. You know, and I just, I found that just so different from anyone who had ever kind of interacted with kids in front of me. So really realizing the depth of that, you know, the compassion. So they're crying and they're, and they're, you know, they're, they're expressing whatever way they, they can. So he was very patient and gentle you know, in that. And he would always say, may God ease this time for them. This is a difficult time until they're able to speak and say what they want. And that kept, you know, those words kept swirling in my head, you know, when I would be standing next to him. And I even said that to him. I said, you taught me, you know, something really valuable about not being able to express. And so I I would say those words back to him, you know, and say like, may, may God ease this time of, for you of not being able to express, he would, he would not, he nodded and, and I had tears in my eyes. You know, I always get really t- emotional when I, when I think of this particular statement, because it just, it touches somewhere really deep as to how compassionate and just insightful, you know, my father was. Um, Let's say is. Is. <laughs> He's still here in a different way. Yes. And so I, I, I learned from there, you know, that was probably my starting point was realizing how hard this was and then just being brave, you know, finding courage to stay there anyway, to try anyway, to understand. And out of all of us, I understood him the most because I stayed there the most and I tried. I was, I want to say, I probably had the most courage to actually be there at his bedside and learn 
you know, this new way of communicating that when he's saying this, he's probably in pain, you know, and this is what he's trying to say. And um, yeah, so it was, it was hard, you know, it was really hard, but, you know, we, we, we managed somehow. I, I was able to speak, you know, and tell him how much I loved him and, um, you know, like how wonderful his presence has always been in my life. You know, I said, if there was ever a best father award, it should go to you. You know, he, he, there was like, he never had a beard, but of course in hospital, there was like, he'd grown a beard. And I said, you actually look um, really distinguished in that. It looks good on you. You know, you're always hesitant to ever grow a beard, but you really look good with a beard. So he'd smile like, like we, you know, there was, there was some, a little bit of normal communication, you know? So, yeah, but it was like, okay, if you, if you're in pain, squeeze my hand. Cause he, he wasn't able to move his legs anymore, but he could, he still had strength in his, in his hands. And of course, cause he would often pull out things they would physically restrain a lot. And so I, when I'd be able to visit, I would open the, the restraints and let him use his hands. And I'd be like, how, and that's the part that always got to me. Cause I was like, how else can he communicate when you tie him down? You know, what else does he do? He can't speak and he can't use his hands. Like it just, it felt so harsh to me. And they'd be like, well, he keeps pulling out things and, and then we have to redo the empty tube. And, and that's very hard on him too. You know, it's like, okay, what do you pick? You know, and then you'd have to just pray and hope and, speak to the nurses that they would, you know, find the compassion in their hearts to pay attention and see from his facial expressions and things if he was in pain or other things. And then the part of being his voice, having to advocate on his behalf, like he's in pain, you know, he needs more pain medication, like, um, and they, and, and they would forget sometimes, you know, they'd forget to put him on pain meds and, like that would be horror for me. I'm like, wow, really? He just had a, a surgery, and you've forgotten to 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 put him on regular pain meds. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know? Um, and they'd be like, oh, he's agitated. I'm like, he's not agitated. He's in pain. When he's moving like this, he's telling you he's in pain. Like, you, you know, someone needs to pay attention. And so that was part of of you know the suffering of this was just the helplessness. And then it just went on for 19 weeks. You know, it's like at the end, we were like, when is this going to be over? Mm-hmm. Can't do this anymore. Yeah, it's a lot. I ask you, the listener, to be attuned to your inner terrain. And if some of the information becomes too overwhelming, take a pause. If there's been triggers that have been activated, the strongest thing you can do for yourself is ask for help. Can you give your definition of what grieving is now? I think to me, grieving is, it's that part of a relationship that occurs after someone dies. So there's, there's phases of like being in love or whatever, getting to know someone. And then, you know, I think there's the phase I'm experiencing that there's this phase that happens after someone's gone and that could only be lived after they're gone. Like there's this depth of love 
um, and realization of the influence and presence and importance and the gratitude and everything that comes with that person that can only be experienced after they're gone, you know, because there's some element of taking that for granted while they're still around. Like there's just no way you're going to feel that unless they're actually gone. And so grieving to me is this, is, is love, you know, um, it's a phase of love. It's, it, there's a lot of pain in it. Um, but I think it's every much as part of life as living is, you know, it's as much as part of life as joy is. It's an honorable thing. I think it's, yeah, it, it requires courage, but it's, it, to me, it's sacred, you know? So it's a sacred. So if you would say definition, I'd say it's a sacred way of being with the person that you love in a different phase of it, a different experience of it, where they're not with you in the physical dimension like they used to be, yet they're still very much with you. And then to honor that in ways that are not always welcomed, I think, by people around us and by society who wants to, who want you to just quickly move on with life. I get this, this statement is said a lot to me. Okay, now when you go back to Canada, you get to move on with life. I'm like, but this is life. This is very much life. How are you noticing the language that people use that may feel like it diminishes the grief or that pain is just supposed to be brushed aside or do you notice anything? Yes. I've been, I've been fortunate to have friends like you and other people in my life who hold space for the, the grief and the pain and they're not afraid of it because they've done the same for themselves. But then there's uh, a lot of other people are not as comfortable being around pain or, or there, there seems to be a time limit to it. So in the beginning, when he first, like he's been gone for like, what, 50 days now. Um, so the first week, it was as if it was more permissible, you know, to be in that state of mourning and crying. And But when it happens now, like how I got emotional a little while ago, if that happens around other people, there's this sort of fear in them that um, it's almost like, okay, when are you going to get over this? and get on with your life you know like i can see that the judge the sort of the judgment or the and it comes from a good place it does you know it comes from a place of concern but it's not very helpful it's not it just it feels um isolating because mm-hmm. um, then all you do is it, it's not that you don't like you quickly get over it, you just stop sharing with them you know that, those parts don't come up with certain people and so you're like, oh, yeah, things are fine, whatever. And it's not really the truth, but it's what this person, their expectation of you. So, and there's a lot of this whole, well, he lived a full life and, you know, he was 76 and, you know, you had your father for so long and there's others who have never had fathers and da, da, da. And yeah, there's a lot of that as well. <laughs> the comparison trap. It's, I don't know why we have to use comparison and rather just sit with, what are we actually feeling? Uh, yeah. I, I can see where um, this fake positivity or fake gratitude to act like as if gratitude cannot have pain and sadness to it. Mm-hmm. Like gratitude is only supposed to be all elated, happy. And it's like, it's all one spectrum. It's not one or the other. It's part of it. So when you see me smiling, know that there's a depth of sadness behind there. 
I'm just choosing to be in this part of it right now, yet I'm not ignoring the other part that's there. Mm -hmm. I guess it's part of our ignorance that if we haven't witnessed our own pain, when we see other people's stuff, we're like, oh, no, 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 don't ignite the stuff that's in me because Mm -hmm. I don't want to have to deal with my stuff. So Mm -hmm. I, I, I do understand you know, and already in society, uh, we do not have context. We're not allowed to show emotions and just put on this certain mask that you can get through things and not show any kind of sensitivity or emotions. And I believe now we're seeing the detriment of that. We're seeing how chaotic things are becoming in professions and institutions and systems. And it's like, our emotions and our our feeling process has been bypassed for too long that now it's coming up to the surface. Thank you for being honest about it. And it's difficult, I'm sure. How do you care for yourself when those soft, sensitive spots of your father are touched? Um, I think the first thing I, I, I'm like very clear in my head about giving the feelings, giving the grief space. It's regardless of what people are saying around me or, you know, even my husband at times, even though he's been, I mean, we've both grown through this and, and that's been really one of the, the gifts of, of this experience. I'm very intentional and clear in my mind about where I'm holding space for that. So, and, and because I'm very clear about that, I don't have this need to necessarily be um, open or, or like, angry or or like have these harsh boundaries because they're there for me like it's like okay you know you guys might not understand but I do and I honor this and so that's that has been very um like it's been like an act of love for myself this tender holding inside me um and and I do and then I I take cues from my body and I I go with it so I've been really pacing myself you know um I asked for time from work to be off for all this all this while that I was there. Very grateful that I was I was given that time off. I mean, it was unpaid time, but yet, you know, I still have the job and it was time away. And I asked for more time after he passed. So about six weeks. And part of that was to to um I knew that the the waves would be intense, like and I I could foresee that. And so I gave made room for it intentional and then even after arriving back in Canada I had I have I still have a few days before I get back to work and so this was all very intentional pacing I know that not everyone perhaps has you know the luxury of doing this or or the space to do this but the message is probably to honor that and give it to yourself in whatever way is possible and so for me this is what was available and I, I gave it to myself. There's a little part in me that kept saying, you know, that was going with the social conditioning. Well, you need to get back to work so that you can get busy. And But like the majority of me is like, yeah, that's not the version of the story I go with anymore. And so this path looks different. And I look around me, I find very few people who have made space for grief the way I have and for loss. I've also gotten a lot of messages from friends going, wow, like you're really teaching us how to do this. This is different, but, uh, but there wasn't really role modeling around me to, to, to do this. But in my heart, it felt like this is what I need to do. 
I'm grateful for the years preceding this year where, you know, the whole mindfulness and self-compassion and that has really practically come into effect in this way. That's what I do. And there's days when I need to sleep for eight or 10 hours. I sleep for eight or 10 hours. I'm very grateful that my husband and even the kids, you know, it's like when you honor and, and give yourself that, that worth and that space, the world um, shifts itself around you. You know, so work, my friends, everyone shifted slowly. And they're like, okay, she needs the space and we're going to help her. So like even my son would be, you know, Zidane says like, okay, mom, I was like, oh, I'm really stressed the other day. And maybe I should go to a hotel and, and spend a few days, you know, a couple of days away. And maybe I need a spa or whatever. He's like, I have a great idea. You can go to your bedroom. We won't bother you. You know, you've got your, your, um, your bathtub and whatever, and you can make your hotel and your spa right there. We'll be really quiet. Promise. I'm like, look at that, you know, and they did. Yeah. And it's great that you're now advocating for what you need and not being afraid of it and not creating those, those walls of boundaries too, of being rigid and I got to run away or or get, it's just expressing what it, what it is that you need and Mm -hmm. allowing and trusting those that would support you in that. You mentioned your children. How are the conversations around death with them? I find the little ones, so they're four going on five, um, are not scared of death. Um, they're, it's very much, very normal for them almost. Like, it's like, okay, yeah, people um, go back to God. Like, what's there to fear about that? And it's, it's interesting to see that because in my mind, it feels like the fear aspects are maybe something we build around it because it's so unknown as we get older. You know, we build our own thoughts around what it could be. So that aspect, they're not... Like they don't, then they don't ask me a lot of questions as to, I have a lot of questions, you know, where is he now and what's he doing? And, and for them, it's like, there's this acceptance of he's gone back. And, and, you know, Zidane, when he was younger, used to say to me, why do people, why are people so afraid of, of death? Like, this is where we came from and this is where we go back to. So why is there this fear? And I'd always smile and say, like, like, that's a really interesting question. I don't know. I think it's because we are afraid of what we don't, we no longer remember, perhaps, or we're not in touch with. And so it's scary. In the beginning, like when he first passed, I told my kids, I sat them down and I, I, I said, you know, um, your, your grandpa has died. And because uh, they would ask me, you know, how's he doing? Can you ask the doctors? When is he going to get better? The little ones, you know, they're four. They work quite expressive in in their in their sadness you know like the facial expressions and then when I told her this is Juri my daughter mm-hmm. I said you know he died she said oh mom I'm really sad and then she looked at me and she said and how are you I said I'm really sad too and then she said and how are your brothers uh you know and it's like I was really kind of taken aback that she's she's four years old but just the emotional connection of asking immediately how are you? And how are your brothers? And I said, yeah, we're all sad. And uh, it's okay to be sad, you know, so just kind of wanting to give them that, that space again, to, so they talk about him a lot. They, they say they see him around. I've mentioned that a few times that they've seen him in the apartment and he's come and he goes. And, and then I say, are you making that up? And, and they're like, no, we're not. Um, and sometimes they say, yes, we are. Cause we miss him so much. And 
this is what we want to happen. And so, you know, it's like, I don't think it really matters. They are expressing their, um, their love in that way. Zidane, who's almost 10, um, had a different reaction. He's very quiet. And so he didn't cry much or speak much until about a few weeks later. He had this one night where he was very restless all night and just very angry and got up in the middle of the night and was pacing and said, I have all this energy, mom, I don't know what to do with it. And, and so I said, okay, well, are you sad? Or do you want to speak about it? He's like, oh, I don't know. And it was just, it was more of like anger and frustration. And then he cried. He, he doesn't express much in words. He's just with emotions. Do you see a need to having conversations about death with children? I do. I think, I mean, in, you know, age appropriate ways, I would say like whatever and, and, and child appropriate as in like different children, I think have different understanding and level of, of comprehension of, of it. But I do think it's important because I mean, there's a lot of fear that's created around not ever talking about it or being assured as a child that I promise you I'll always be there for you. Well, you don't really know that. And I remember, you know, being nine and, and looking at my parents and saying, but you don't like, you don't know that though, that you're always going to be here for me. Like that does not reassure me at all. And it just feels like a big lie. So then why wouldn't you tell me the truth? You know? So I do think that this whole taboo around talking about death, even as adults, like we don't really want to talk about it. And I'm like, but it's the only truth that we are certain of. Why would we not make it um, a bit more normal? You know, it doesn't have to be morbid and depressing, make it a little more acceptable and I think it's fascinating that it's something that, like you said, is an absolute truth that we know the physical part, there will be an ending to it. Yet, for some reason, people cannot just speak of the facts of it. Like you said, there is this morbid or it feels like if you talk about it, you're going to bring it on or there's a curse of it or and it's like, no, this is something that we need to speak about so that we can start to process how we're going to interact with ourselves because when we act like it's a foreign thing and it's never going to happen and then bang, it hits us. It's like, what is this thing? I've never even had verbiage or communication or tried to even talk out my understanding of this or or try to relate with other people with this. I, I can imagine and relate to some of why people would be afraid of talking about death. You know, there, I've had times in the last um, few weeks where it becomes this obsessing thing and my the fear of death, you know, and then looking at people around me, the fear of it occurring, it could occur to my husband, you know, my kids, and what would my life look like if I didn't have them and that, that sort of panic attack. And so I, I want, maybe that's what people don't know how to work with that and what to do with it when it comes up. And so then they'd rather just not talk about it at all or, mm-hmm. you know, have to face it. And, and, and I'm been sort of navigating that myself as well as to when those thoughts come up and I start going into this panic mode of, <sighs> you know, this is a very real thing that could happen at any time, you know? And then where do I go from there? And so I always remember Brene Brown's words for that one, where she says, leaning into those moments of vulnerability, realizing you're feeling like this, because these are people in your life that that you love so much. And then to, to lean into that, and rather than going into the path of fear, 
going into sort of the love and gratitude you have for them. And that let me then make the most of my time here. Let me live those moments with them with what really matters. If the little ones are eating with their hands or whatever, like who cares? You know, Use that to put it into perspective of what really matters. Just kind of channel that energy. So But then you can't really, you can talk about this for as long as you want, unless you've actually done that. Like you've gone to that place of of fear and panic for myself. And then from there channeled it into, you know, the preciousness of the love, the fragility of it all, the impermanence of, of these experiences and realizing that we are, it's truly miraculous that we're, when we're having these moments with each other. Mm -hmm. And so to bring yourself back to that, and then to not worry about or obsess about how am I going to make it through without them? Because there's no way you can really prepare for that. And to trust that if you live fully showing up for those moments, that if those that time comes for them to transition, or maybe you do before them or whatever, that you will be given what you need at that time. Mm-hmm. Can't, you, can't, you can't see that yet because you're not in that yet. It's a whole training of sorts. And I think that if that's done earlier in life, as you were saying, you show up for life differently and your relationships and, and the people that you interact with, it's just, it's going to be a different experience for sure. Put on to what you just said. It's using that energy when those, you know, it, it feels like dark thoughts. It is a sincere panic, an overwhelmment of fear because our nervous system has one function, don't die. And so when it's thinking of other nervous systems that are going to die, that's an overwhelmment. And especially when we have connection and some of it is attachment. So we understand there's a part of us that is going to react a certain way. And when we can use that energy in the force of appreciating and empowering our choices with intention, yeah, no longer just doing whatever in yes. survival of what other people told us that we can use that energy to be very intentional with the choices of how we're showing up with these moments and with these people. But I thank you for bringing that up because it is also too, that there's a lot of people that have these thoughts and they don't even know where to share it with people Yeah, because people don't want to talk about it mm-hmm. and people don't want to feel that or, or, or they don't understand it because their mind will not go in those kind of depths. And so there are a lot of people that it's like, oh, it's not just me that obsess or can loop into this. And it's like, no, there's many if they go into the depths of certain places or have experienced things. And there's a way of channeling that energy in a way that you can empower your choices with intention. Absolutely. There's something that my mom said recently that, um, you know, fits in uh, this part of the conversation. She said it. This, this whole time in life, like there was this, this sense of I'm doing this for the future. I'm doing this for the future as if the future was extending itself. And she's like, it's not extending itself. It's actually coming towards, you know, like closing it. And you're actually not going beyond like, it's like, so, so she said, stay aware of that because here I am at the end of it all, you know, after my dad passed. And she says, I'm like, I thought there was still more to go, but there isn't. And I was saving stuff for this future. And and actually, it's one day less of your life every day. And sure, you know, you plan ahead and all of that. But we really do plan ahead. I know for myself, as if you're going to live for this extended amount of time and like you're buying time. Time is regressing. 
physically as we know it in this in this dimension it's like it's a different way of living when you think about it that way and again not morbidly obsessing and going all you know crazy over it but just just realizing like for me for sure there's a sense of moving forward now for whatever time i have remaining for me i'm very much aware of it now with intention and again i'm pacing myself in that i know moving forward i have no doubt that life is is beginning to look different and will look different for me in terms of the career path and family and all of that. You recently posted, you mentioned about if you would have known that it was your last time that your father would have been visiting Edmonton, you would not have been so focused on the appearance and the perfection of things. Yeah. So this is exactly two years ago now. My parents uh, were visiting here in Edmonton and we had just moved to Edmonton. I remember spending so much time organizing the house and unpacking and this, this frenzy of uh, frenzied energy, you know, of needing things to be in place and whatever. And, you know, and, and running around doing errands and, and all that. Now looking back, I'm like, if I had known that that would be his last trip, I, I probably would have spent more time just sitting next to him drinking tea because we both love drinking tea, you know, with cardamom and, and, and milk and this, this tea that we both enjoy. And, and we would talk about more of the things that I wanted to talk about. He loved talking about history. His life is just so full of all these stories and travels and history. And I would have wanted to hear those again. I miss those so much, you know, and there was always the sense I had, you know, there were, there were actually, now that I'm thinking back, there was a part of me that knew to treasure these moments, you know, like there was a part, cause I remember taking some pictures and videos of him and my kids. I knew when I was doing that, but it wasn't, it wasn't here, you mm-hmm. know, the front of my mind, it was somewhere in the back. But now when I think back, there was a part of me that was asking me to make those videos and was telling me, you are going to need these in the future. This is these are videos you will cherish forever. Like I remember that so well. And but I didn't really I didn't really want to pay attention to it. You know what I mean? Like it was just somewhere there. I I did the action that it told me to, but I didn't really want to turn around and say what are you what are you saying here? And I always thought I had more time with him because my my grandmother his his mom um she passed when I was 14 uh, and she was in her 90s. And my uncle's older than him, his brothers passed in their late eighties. So I'd always say to myself, you know, if their average age kind of life expectancy for this family, sort of late eighties, I have at least 10 more years with my dad and maybe in 10 years, I'll be ready. You know, uh, maybe in 10 years that I calculate the age in my mind of how old I would be. And I'd say, I think when I see people who are in that age group, they look a little bit readier. Like, like, yeah, no, not really. <laughs> Because people don't express, they don't show their grief. And so you think people are just cruising along, you know, Um, and it's like, that's not the truth. What words would you want to offer to others about taking time to appreciate those that you value and, and love? Time. There's this horizontal kind of passing of time, you know, from beginning to end. There's also a vertical depth to it. I don't know if that makes sense to people if they hear this or not, but I'm going to say it anyway. There's this vertical sense to time. Like if you drop into the moments, it's like time becomes this 3D or whatever. It's not this flat linear thing. It it just, it has 
depth and dimension to it, and it just becomes fuller. And so that experience, it's the same amount of time. The moments are bigger and fuller. And that sense of fullness at the end of your life, I think, I feel like if you've had that sense of fullness with people that you love and the moments and the, and even if you're by yourself, you know, just appreciating where you are, it's perhaps easier to transition because maybe I feel like the regrets I have with my dad or what I see even as a physician in, in my career, it's it's of not having lived fully. It, it's not about the, the length of time. It's the fullness of it. So I would say drop into the moment, whatever that looks like for you. Just, just drop, drop into it and just be there. And you're going to get distracted for sure. And I do all the time. So like I'm saying this, but I don't drop into moments all the time either. It's just, it's just It has to be intentional. But every time I think of it, it's like, okay, what am I doing here? I would like to look at my kids' faces a bit more, actually see them. And then when I when I do that, I realize, wow, I haven't looked at you like this for a long time. Because even when I see you in front of me, I'm not seeing you. I'm seeing my agenda that I have with you right now. Okay, you need to finish your lunch because then you need to go out and play. And then, you know, this, there's this, and then there's school, and then there's whatever. So I'm, I'm seeing you, but I'm not really fully appreciating you. And so I think if, you know, as humans, we're definitely going to get busy and and distracted, but if there's a few moments of that every day, I think it gives that vertical dimension and the other dimensions to time and life. And every time I do that, I'm less afraid of death. I ask you, the listener, to be attuned to your inner terrain. And if some of the information becomes too overwhelming, take a pause. If there's been triggers that have been activated, the strongest thing you can do for yourself is ask for help. Can you give me the definition or how do you define intimacy? Into me, you see, <laughs> right? Um, to me, intimacy is is really um, letting the, the masks and the layers um, kind of drop and letting myself be seen. Also having the courage to see the person in front of me, um, even if there's stuff there that m- Initially, I might go and it might reflect back at me as, as a criticism of me or like, whoa, you know, that they're saying this to me. And it's like, but can I can I just drop the armor and be there? And so to me, that's, that's intimacy. How have you become more intimate with yourself from this experience? Or have you? I have. There's parts that knock and show up. You know, there's parts that say... I'm really sad and heartbroken right now. Um, I'm really afraid. I'm afraid of my own mortality. I don't want to die. A lot of these different parts. And then there's those parts that gently hold the truth. You know, like the part that told me to to make that video of my dad with the, with the kids. And there's that part that knows the truth as well. Have been a bit scared of because it's it, it doesn't always say things that I want to necessarily hear. It's turning towards those parts now and not distracting them away. So to me, that's being real and being more intimate with myself. And the more I do it, the kinder I can be stepping out in the world. You know, I don't need those, like those hard, angry boundaries. And by that, the physical distancing, I need to do it less and less. I can, I can, I'm finding ways to do that. Even when like the kids are around me and they're, there's all this chaos going on. And, and previously that noise would be like, okay, can you guys go play somewhere else? Now it's like, okay, I can actually honor whatever's coming out for me and make room for it. And then I don't need to necessarily have them physically leave that space. I mean, not, not always, but yeah, I there's times where I still need my, my space, but so just being more aware of, of what's coming up, I think. And, um, 
not being afraid of it. The environment is it was in the ICU is very jarring and and um, nothing pleasant about it. You know, there's monitors and things beeping here and beeping there and lines everywhere. And there were moments of profound spirituality in those where I would surrender to the moment, you know, and not be thinking of anything else, but just being there for him. What can I do to love him and care for him in this moment? And and I wouldn't be thinking of, oh, is he going to make it through this or not? It would just be, what can I do? And so I could, I would be able to see, okay, I can, you know, fix the pillow here, um, fix his leg here. You know, there's this line that's under his arm to remove that and kind of, you know, it was indenting into his arm and I mean, he couldn't move. So doing all of that, or I'd massage his feet. And my dad was never sort of very touchy feely. He was actually, he would get uncomfortable and he he was very, um, and probably a trauma response in him as well, very independent and, and I will take care of others, but I am, am sort of hesitant to be taken care of. Yet in those moments, he let me care for him. You know, he could see that I was doing that and there'd be no hesitation because I would be looking at his face for cues and I'd say, and I'd ask him permission sometimes, can I massage your feet? And he'd, he'd nod and say, yes, you know, and I'd, I'd say, how does that feel? And moments were, were very intimate. And, and I got to know my dad in a whole other way. And my siblings didn't necessarily go into that depth because it, it was, it was, it was hard required so much courage and being brave, you know, but I, I knew in my heart at that time that there was, there was just nowhere else I wanted to be, you know, it just gave me comfort. The minute that I surrendered to that, you know, even the pain and the suffering of everything he was going through for those moments, it would lessen is all I would be in the frame of mind would be, okay, how can I attend to him with love? You know? So to me, that was an expression of love that it was very different from when he was, um, you know, not sick or conversations we would have a whole other other dimension you know when we were talking about intimacy yeah there was this moment um that i had with my husband this was a few days after my dad passed the way that i got news of him transitioning was a phone call from the hospital at 2 30 a.m saying that he had deteriorated and that we were to come in because there were some decisions to make but please don't rush and it's like okay you know he's probably towards the end or maybe he's already gone you know like the way that that messaging was so we're going there at 2 30 a.m my brothers and I and when we got there it was a long walk to the ICU and uh long halls to go through and I had this sense of of this is the last time I'm going to be walking these halls to visit him or to go to him like I was very much aware of that so kind of taking in all and absorbing everything that was happening, very present for it. And then walking, 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 got, we got to the doors, you know, they they automatically opened up because they probably pressed the button inside at a nursing station. And then somebody came and, and just put this cardboard box on, under the door to keep it open so it doesn't close shut. And she walked away and, that, and there was no one there to receive us. You know, and his room was the first room on the right. It was this glass door. The curtain had been pulled inside the door. And so my brother said, the curtain's pulled. And I said, is he dead? And he said, I don't know. And I said, okay, well, we need to go in, you know? So we pressed the button to open the doors and open the curtains. And he was, he was in a body bag. And I remember that moment hitting me like a ton of bricks, but not having time for that at that time, because we had to deal with the situation. But I remember, the, you know, I, 
whoa, you know, and just, just like the shock of it. And I said, and my brother's just froze there. I started crying and I said, I want to see him. You know, I want to see him though. I haven't seen him for a week, you know, and then I opened the bag and I, I, um, he had probably passed very, um, like it hadn't been much time because he was still warm and his face looked like it was in pain and his body was in just such awful shape. You know, his neck was all bruised. There was like everywhere they had taken out the lines, they were like all these gauzes. And he was dressed in that flimsy isolation gown, the yellow gown and like a, an adult diaper. And, and there was blood in the diaper. And it's just like so jarring to see, you know, and I kept wanting to, 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 to see and touch him, you know, and like he was still alive, you know, like I would when I would visit and what have they done to you, you know, and I looked at his feet and I'm like, gosh, and, and, and there was no one there, you know, no, like no, none of the physicians, none of the nurses. It's like, like wow, you know, and then the resident came and, um, you know, my brother said what happened. And then he was just kind of telling us what happened. And then he said, he looked at us and he said, well, you guys, you know how sick he's been for the last few weeks. And I mean, you're physicians, you, you kind of knew that he's been really sick. And I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, but this is our dad that just died. You know, it's like, could there be some compassion? But all of that, like, I didn't have time to process any of that at that time. Because then it was like in our faith or tradition, the burial and everything happens very quickly. It's part of honoring the the deceased is to do all those um, steps quickly. So, and then there's a prayer that's done. And so we, we took him to Mecca for the prayer and the burial. And so all of those logistics had to be figured out. So we were also making the phone calls and our cousins and whatever. And, you know, the family members came and everyone helped us out. So we weren't alone. Um, and then there's a final visitation at home for him to be brought home. I wanted him to leave from home and not from the hospital directly. And so they, you know, we brought him home. So there was all of that going on. So there wasn't time to really process this. It came like three days later or four days later. And I was talking to a colleague of mine who um, had also gone through a colleague and really good friend of mine whose mom had passed away in ICU several months before that. And I found myself telling him the story and, and, and realizing as I was telling him how that moment had been for me and how I could have just shoved it away you know, but that moment came up and I was like livid and angry. And then after that, I told Adil about it, you know, my husband. And, and then I cried so much after that. Like, I don't think I've cried as, as, as deeply and as, you know, yeah, as deeply, like my heart was breaking so deeply at that moment. And I curled up in a ball and I just cried. Like it was this deep cry. And he, he just stayed there. I think he he laid down next to me as well or something, but he just let me curl up and just let me cry. He didn't say anything. And I cried for, I don't know how long. And I said, God, I'm just so heartbroken. Like, why, you know, why was there no, like they didn't let us see him for a week and they, he was in such awful shape at the end. He died by himself. We weren't there next to him. And then he was in a body bag. Like, that's how they give us the news. Like, what the hell is wrong with people? You know, and I'm going to remember this, this image for the rest of my life. Do they, do they understand that for them? It's just another person who passed. I get that part, but for us, it's that like that moment is seared in my mind. It just felt like they took away something very precious, you know, the dignity of those moments. And then I said to him, I, uh, 
this is going to be part of, of what I want moving forward. Like my mission in healthcare is to remind everybody, my colleagues, my friends of the importance of this, this aspect of, of, you know, a person, a patient is a person and their family members. It's as important, if not more than the moments of, of health and wellness and when they get well and get out, like this moment is what they will remember forever. And so how people show up for it is like healthcare workers. And, it, and we were, we didn't need too much in that moment. Maybe just um, a word of kindness, like someone to be there with us when this was, or to tell us like he's passed or not to like zip him in a body bag and just like, boom, you show up there. And it's like, like, maybe just a sheet or something, or I don't know, or maybe he called us in a bit earlier when he was still, but you know, they, they were just in a whole different mindset. So that moment with the deal was, was, um, was big, you know, and that's where I knew that a huge shift had happened for both of us. And I remember feeling like my heart was breaking so much. Like I felt like I kept, you know, sinking and sinking and sinking into this pain. Like it would never stop. But then half an hour later, I was able to get up and um, it was lighter, you know, and I was able to move forward. What some listeners may not recognize is the duality that you had to go through of, you know, these other physicians understanding that you're a physician, yet not seeing that you're a daughter of the patient. Yes. And which role do they present to you? And so now moving forward, like you just said, you want to bring this experience to the other physicians to be aware that when it is a family member, no matter what the role, we have to serve the relationship and yeah. see the human in the person. Meditation is exactly like you described in the hospital. It's showing up in the reality of what life is, not in a room that you are being able to control the settings and make everything so quiet. Meditation is actually showing up with whatever is present and being with it all and not just blocking it out. And like you said, it takes a lot of courage and bravery to just keeping your heart open with all that mm. and still going for it, even though there's like the unknown and the uncertainty. And that is what meditation is. We have yeah. the practice, yes, of sitting and clearing out and purging and all that. Yet the whole reason why you do that is so that you can be in the meditation of life. And when it, it gets spiritual, like you just mentioned, when you are seeing the fragility of life and that it's having to be sustained by and supported by so many other things, that takes a lot of courage. Yeah. And the way you're describing it, it's, yeah, that is what spirituality is. That is what meditation is. Not all the unicorn shitting rainbows and everything's la la and we're just going to go Zen and everything. It's like, no, it's actually being human and showing up with the process of it all. Yeah. And the ebbs and flows of it all. Yeah. And it, it takes a courage of going into that intimacy too. And I, I remember us messaging and I was offering, you know, some suggestions for that intimacy too of, you know, just brush his hair, treat him like a little child. And it, it can be difficult to do that to our parents that have always not 
accepted tenderness, don't know how to receive that, that kindness from others and being vulnerable in that state. And I remember you sharing the intimacy of being able to brush and care for him and being so tender with him and allowing him to be opening up to that, that receiving and that loving. And uh, I appreciate you sharing that and being living proof that it is possible. Hmm. It's not easy. No, not easy. It sucks. Not easy. And I needed a lot of support through it um, and, and sort of inner and outer, you know, and my inner support was I prayed a lot. Like I had these prayers, I, I would say, and I had these, these beads that I prayed with. And every time I would hold on to them and I would pray um, after I was done, like uh, massaging his feet or whatever, adjusting, helping the nurses adjust him. And, and then I would sit on the chair next to him. I'd have my prayer. I, I don't think I've prayed so much in all my life. And I would feel, you know, the presence of, of God, you know, with me, like it was like this tender, you know, embrace. And it was, it was this compassionate, tender, gentle energy kind of embracing me and uplifting me. That wasn't like coming, it was coming from external. Like it wasn't, I knew this wasn't just me, you know, there was this bigger presence with me and uh, it, it helped me all throughout and was very much there. So even I'm speaking about it right now. I can feel it again. Like there's just, it, and it brought this, this calmness with it, this, this sense of you're okay. And that didn't mean you're not in pain and, and all of that, but you're, you're, you, you can hold this, you can make room for this. And my heart would stretch and, and make room for it, you know? And so there's definitely this expansion of the heart and, um, or it would break and then it would, kind of remold and this time it would be bigger like there was all of that and then in that praying at home as well you know to all the places of worship that that bring me comfort and like I did a lot of that it it grounded me it gave me a place to belong to rest in and then I would I would get that energy and show up for the the very practical the very messy the very um scary aspects of it all you know, seeing him bleed and bleed and bleed, for example, like that was in front of me, the whole bed was soaked with blood. And I'd be like, is he going to bleed to death today? You know, the day that I helped the nurse clean him up when he had so much blood under him, you know, that he was bleeding. Like, I remember those moments. And so there was this, this, there were these forces with me, you know, and I mean, there's no doubt in my mind of them there. I couldn't see them, but they were there around me, holding me and supporting me. So I was never alone, you know, even though I would be sitting by myself at his bedside because we weren't allowed, like there was only one person at a time and it was quite strict. I would, I didn't feel alone. Is there anything that you'd like to share with the listeners or you think that would be helpful for them? I'm going to reflect on that and see what comes through. Hmm. I would say it's not a luxury to wake up to your life. It's, it, it's not like something you do on retreats and we need to wake up now, you know, and waking up isn't like this whole fancy complex spiritual thing. Just wake up to time is, is again, not obsessing, but time is going. It's, it is ticking. Now is the time to do what you need to do. What is it that you've been putting on hold? You know, for me, it's the book. I've just gotten into it and I'm put myself some goals and every day I do some writing. Because I, I keep thinking I have time. And it's like, mm-mm, 
you know, what are you waiting for? Just do it. That thing that you've been holding off or waiting to be ready for, or maybe when I this or that, like that dream, that whatever, that phone call, you know, that whatever it is, just do it. Wake up and do it. And that's how I'm approaching life. Just do it. Just say it. How has trust with yourself been through this experience? It's grown. It's grown. I've, um, the part of me that is more willing to trust myself. There, there were parts that were nece- not necessarily that used to kind of outsource some of that trust to others. And, you know, if X person validates this decision, then I'm on the right path. And part of, and one of those people was, were my, was my dad. But when I look back, he actually never told me what to do. He would ask me what I wanted and he would ask me my thought process. Like, have you thought it through? Like if I was buying something new or whatever, well, have you thought through the budget? Can you afford it? And he wouldn't say, is it right or wrong? He would say, have you thought it through? And I would be like, yeah. And then he'd be like, well, then sounds like, you know what you're doing. And I think that's what is probably the part that I miss the most when I think now to my dad is the part that reflected back to me and gave me permission to trust myself. And I think that's probably the message that I needed to hear today from myself as well is I I have trusted. I trusted myself to go there. I trusted myself to travel with my family. I trusted myself to show up at his bedside the way I did. And so that relationship of trust is growing. And I trust myself right now, even though I I can see people around me not giving me back that same mirroring that he would of yes, probably because those people who are not giving that that back to me haven't necessarily developed that trust with themselves. So they're they're still looking for external um, parameters to say, this is how I need to live. Yet here I am like forging sort of a different path than a lot of my peers and in healthcare or my friends around me, or my path looks different. So it, it does, to many, it feels like I've fallen off the deep end into woo-woo land. But to me, it, it feels like this is the right path. So definitely grown and continues to grow. The trust, I mean. I want to thank you for being on the podcast and having such an intimate, open conversation and sharing such a very fragile, delicate experience that you're still going through. And being open to share it with so many. I appreciate and I value our relationship. So thank you for being here with me. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, I'm very grateful. Um, I'm probably going to have, you know, a vulnerability hangover or something after this. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, you share too much. But no, I I think um, what needed to be uh, said was said. I'm very grateful. Thank you. Remember to be kind and gentle with yourself continuing to do so. And you too. I will. Thank you for making it all the way to the end. This podcast had a lot of discomfort and triggers. Know that there is help out there. You do not have to do it alone. The strongest thing you can do for yourself is ask for help. If you found anything relevant or think anyone would benefit from this conversation, please share it out. Help grow Lift Oneself. Help grow the community. Until next time, remember, be kind and tender with yourself. You matter.